to Ezekiel chapter 17, Ezekiel chapter 17. We're going to go through chapter 18 as well. Ezekiel 17 is a parable describing the events between the time of King Jehoiakim's exile and the year that King Zedekiah revolted against Babylon because he trusted Egypt's promise to help him. The king of Babylon is the first eagle who exiles King Jehoiachin and then plants Zedekiah like the seed to rule over Judah, believing he'll stay joined with Babylon. But Babylon reaches out to Egypt, which is the second eagle, and we'll see that in a few seconds here. And uh, again, uh, Babylon reaches out to Egypt, the second eagle in chapter 17, hoping it will become his, he will become, Egypt will become their ally. So the chapter is about Judah being judged for revolting from Babylon. So from the images of a vine and marriage last week, here in 17, Ezekiel turned to the image of a great tree, two eagles, and three shoots. And this message is called a parable or riddle, which means a story, but with a deeper meaning, an allegory where different things refer to people and what they do. The Jewish people liked talking about the wise sayings of the men of old. And they were always trying to find deeper meanings in the thing, in those, in those conversations that they had. Ezekiel hoped that his allegory would wake up his dull listeners and give them something to think about. And maybe the truth would grab a hold of their hearts and change the way they saw things about what God was doing with them. And this allegory, like I said, is about three, three shoots or three kings. Because the cedar tree represents the royal line of David. David's line was very important because through it, God promised to bring a savior to his people and the world. And it was important that an ancestor of David sit on the throne so that the blessing of God's covenant with David might rest on the land. And at that time, the king of Judah was a puppet state of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar was in charge. Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar was the first great eagle. We'll see it mentioned in verse 3. The second eagle, mentioned in verse 7, is the ruler of Egypt, probably Pharaoh Hophra, who promised to help Judah in their fight against the Babylonians, according to verse 17. The eagle is a symbol of a strong ruler who invades the land. Now we're going to look at the three kings represented by the three shoots. So let's begin with chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. We have the parable of the two eagles. And the word of the Lord said to me, Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, pose a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. So why was he asked to pose a riddle? Because they wouldn't listen to what Ezekiel was saying. So he had to try to get these people's attention, and he had to do it in a strange and unusual way, hoping to get their attention. Look at verses 3 and 4. And say, thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with large wings and long pinions or feathers, full of feathers of various colors, came to Lebanon and took from the cedar the highest branch. He cropped off its topmost young twig or shoot and, and carried it to a land of trade and he set it in a city of merchants. 
When King Nebuchadnezzar came down on Judah in 597 BC, he dethroned King Jehoiakim and he took him and his family and his staff to Babylon. He also took the temple treasures and 10,000 officers, artisans, and soldiers. And so this fulfilled the prophecy Isaiah told to King Hezekiah after he'd shown all of his wealth to the Babylonian visitors. Jehoiachin was the highest shoot or branch in David's family tree. And he was planted, according to verse 5, in Babylon. Jehoiachin had reigned only three months and ten days. Jeremiah also called this king Jehoiachin, Coniah, and, in, and Jeconiah in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. In Ezekiel 19, 5 through 9, Jehoiachin is compared to a lion who would be caught and taken to Babylon. And during Jehoiachin's three months on the throne, instead of leading the people back to faith in the Lord, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and he died in Babylon. Look at now verses 5 through 10. Then he took some of the seed of the land and planted it in a fertile field. He placed it by abundant waters and set it like a willow tree. And it grew and became a spreading vine of low, of low stature. Its branches turned toward him, but its roots were under it. So it became a vine, brought forth branches, and put forth shoots. But there was another great eagle with large wings and many feathers. And behold, this vine bent its roots towards him and stretched its branches toward him from the garden terrace where it had been planted that, him, that he might water it. It was planted in good soil by many waters to bring forth branches, bear fruit, and become a majestic vine. Say, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots, cut off its fruit, and leave it to wither? All of its springs leaves... All of, it, all of its spring leaves will wither, and no great power or many people will be needed to pluck it up by its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind torches it or touches it? It will wither in the garden terrace where it grew. In verse 5 now, the, images, the image changes. The remaining state of Judah was no longer a mighty cedar after it fell to Babylon. It became a simple vine in Palestine. But it flourished. Because you see, it was well taken care of and protected as long as it subjected itself to King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the first great eagle. But then a second eagle appeared, or king, looking powerful and impressive. And the vine stretched its roots, it says here, and branches toward him in verses 7 and 8. This represented Zedekiah's rebellious request asking Egypt for help against Babylon. But Ezekiel warned that their rebellion, which it seems started at the time of the message, would be a disaster according to verses 9 and 10. Even if they relocated, it probably wouldn't survive. Verses 11 through 21. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, <clears throat> Say now to the rebellious house, Do you not know what these things mean? Tell them. Indeed, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and took its king and princes and led them with him to Babylon. And he took the king's offspring, made a covenant with him, and put him under oath. He also took away the mighty of the land, that the kingdom might be brought low and not lift itself up, but that by keeping his covenant it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and many people. 
will he prosper? Will he who does such things escape? Can he break a covenant and still be delivered? As I live, says the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke, with him in the midst of Babylon he shall die. Nor will Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company do anything in the war when they heap up a siege mound and build a wall to cut off many persons. Since he despised the oath by breaking the covenant and in fact gave his hand and still did all these things, he shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely my oath, which he despised, and my covenant, which he broke, I I will recompense on his own head. I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon and try him there for the treason which he committed against me. All his fugitives with all his troops shall fall by the sword, and those who remain shall be scattered to every wind, and you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken. Verses 11 through 21 make it pretty clear about the meaning of the parable uh, or who the symbols represent. Again, the first great eagle mentioned in verse 3 was King Nebuchadnezzar. And the highest branch of the cedar mentioned in verse 3 was Jehoiakim and the nobles of Judah or the leaders of Judah. The seed planted in the land, according to verse 5, of uh, the land of Canaan was Zedekiah, Jehoiakim's uncle, who was placed on the throne by King Nebuchadnezzar. He made a secret treaty with Pharaoh Hophra of Egypt to overthrow Nebuchadnezzar's rule. God asked, would the plan work? No, it wouldn't. Ezekiel warns Zedekiah that he be taken captive and die in Babylon. Zedekiah brought more disgrace on God by breaking the oath to be loyal to Nebuchadnezzar that he had taken because he used the name of Yahweh. He made his oath. All right, he made his oath to be loyal to Nebuchadnezzar and he swore in the name of Yahweh to confirm his promise and he didn't keep it. After judgment became unavoidable, God's will for Judah was to submit to their foreign conquerors as a sign of their submission to God. And as king, Zedekiah had promised to lead God's people in obedience to the divine covenant. So when he despised his oath and breaking his covenant with Nebuchadnezzar, it was the same as treachery and rebellion against God. Zedekiah was just as unfaithful to King Nebuchadnezzar as he was to God. So God allowed him to be taken captive to Babylon. All of Zedekiah's troops took off and they were killed by the invading Babylonian army, according to verses 19 through 21. So the accuracy of this description of Jerusalem's destruction confirmed the truth of what God's word said. Again, the truth of this prediction. Look at verses 22 through 24. Thus says the Lord God, I will take also one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out. I will crop off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, and it will bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a majestic cedar. Under it will dwell birds of every sort. In the shadow of its branches they will dwell. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree, dried up the green tree, and made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. Zedekiah reigned for 11 years, and he was the 20th and last king of Judah. 
His dethronement and death in Babylon, it seemed to mark the end. It seemed to like be the end of the Davidic line, which would have resulted in the failure of God's covenant with King David. But it's not the case. The prophet Hosea predicted that the children of Israel would be without a king and without a prince in Hosea chapter 3, verse 4. But the messianic line didn't die out. Thus, Jesus could be born through it. He had to be born through it because that's what God's word said. After, the, after Babylon was conquered by the Medes and Persians, Cyrus allowed the Jews to go back to their land. And one of their leaders was Zerubbabel, a great-grandson of godly King Josiah and an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. So once again, a godly remnant stayed true to the Lord and the promised Messiah was born. The name Zerubbabel, it means shoot of Babylon. But he helped to make possible the birth of the shoot of David, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Jehoiachin had been a shoot plucked from the top of the cedar, it says in verse 22, and then taken to Babylon. But his descendants were rejected, according to Jeremiah chapter 22. While Zedekiah was a shoot planted in Judah, both of these men failed to please the Lord or to do his will. Was there any hope left for God's people after that? Of course. The Lord promised to take a young twig off the highest branch of the high cedar. Here in verse 22, it says, And plant it in the land of Israel, where it would grow and would become a great kingdom. This shoot, in verse 22, is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came from the stem of Jesse, and one day he's going to set up his glorious kingdom on the earth. The high mountain mentioned in verse 22 that Ezekiel wrote about is probably Mount Zion, where Messiah will reign over his people. The small shoot will grow into a mighty tree and provide shelter. But in order for the shoot to be planted and to take root and to grow, the other trees, the other kingdoms will have to be removed. Some of them will be cut down and others will just, will just wither away. So the kingdoms of, the kingdoms of men... Many times they seem large and powerful and that they're going to be around forever. And sometimes the kingdoms of the Lord seem to be small and withering away. But when Jesus returns to earth to rule and to reign, those tables will be turned. And this is why we must never be afraid or discouraged when we look, and especially like now, when we look what's hap at what's happening in the world today. Jesus came as a root out of dry ground, Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 53. He came as an insignificant root from David's family, but one day his kingdom is going to fill the earth. So never stop praying, Lord, your kingdom come, because that prayer will be answered. And the fulfillment of God's kingdom promises to David, promise to David is in Jesus Christ, and he will not fail. It was a dark time for the people of Israel. But as you know, the, 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 the darkness, you know, it isn't as dark when that small light is seen shining. So when the day is the darkest, God's promises shine the brightest. God's people today, we need to pay attention to this word of prophecy, to all of God's word, which is a light that shines in dark times and in a dark world. Just as Jesus fulfilled prophecy and came the first time to die for the sins of the world, he's going to come the second time. And he's going to reign over his kingdom, his righteous kingdom. 
that tender shoot of David is going to be the mighty king, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. Let's move into chapter 18 now. Chapter 18 rules or, or deals with personal judgment of personal sin. It's a powerful chapter, and, and take note of, of what it says. Let's begin with verses 1 through 4. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. So as we read this chapter, we find Ezekiel correcting the wrong things that the Jewish exiles were saying about God because of the difficult situation that they were in. And many times when we get into a difficult situation, we start saying wrong things about God. Oh, he doesn't love me, or he doesn't know what's going on in my life, or he doesn't care. Ezekiel here is going to correct the wrong things that the Jewish people were saying because of the condition they were in, which was because of their disobedience and their worshiping of idols. God knew what his people were saying, and they were ignoring the inspired word of God. The people were building their case on a popular proverb that was quoted here in verse 2. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, the parents have eaten sour grapes, but their children's mouths pucker at the taste. So what he's saying is that because of our parents who sinned in the past, we are suffering the consequences. And this is where Ezekiel is going to show them that is not true. Each man, each person is to be responsible for their own sin. We will not be punished for the sins of others. He says, again, our fathers have sinned and we, their children, are being punished for it. You see, their way of thinking was kind of a foolish pessimism, a foolish fatalism. They're saying no matter what we do, we still have to suffer because of what the older generation did. Jeremiah quoted the same familiar proverb, and he preached the same truth that Ezekiel preached here. God deals with us as individuals, and he punishes each of us justly for what we do. God is a just and righteous God who shows no favoritism. And if he holds back punishment, it's only because of his grace and his merciful patience. So where did Ezekiel's listeners get this idea? That God punished the children for the sins committed by their parents, their ancestors. Well, their thinking came from two sources. One of the sources, they misinterpreted what the Lord said in his law. That said he visited the sins of the fathers upon the children. And second, the Jewish idea of the oneness of the nation. According to the law of Moses, innocent animals could suffer and die for guilty sinners. That's what the sacrifices were all about. The animal didn't do anything wrong, but he was suffering and being sacrificed for the sins of guilty people. But nowhere was it taught that innocent people should be punished for sins committed by guilty people. Moses taught the exact opposite in Deuteronomy chapter 4, 16. He said, the fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall the children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall, shall be put to death for his own sin. 
The warning in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, and Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, implies that the Lord punished the children if they commit the sins that their fathers committed. Also, God promised to bless those children who followed God's examples and obeyed the Lord. So he gave promises of blessing as well as warnings of chastening. Now, as for the oneness of the nation, the Jewish people did think of themselves as one people who all descended from Abraham. And since each tribe descended from one of the sons of Jacob, Israel was, they, they, they claimed both a national and a, and a tribal unity. So their thinking was if only one Israelite disobeyed the Lord, it was though all Israel had sinned. Knowing this, the Jewish people came to the conclusion that the Babylonian invasion and the people being exiled, it was because of the sins of the previous generation. And again, this is what Ezekiel is going to correct in them. Ezekiel answered the people's objections and explained the truth about God's judgment and his justice by sharing some hypothetical situations and drawing some conclusions. And he does that in verses 5 through 18. So let's look at verses 5 through 18. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, if he has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry, and covered the naked with clothing, and if he has not exacted usury, or collected interest, nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from an iniquity, and executed true judgment between man and man, if he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just and he shall surely live, says the Lord God. Here's the next example. If he begets a son who is a robber or a shedder of blood, who does, who does any of these things that is mentioned above and does not, uh, and, um, who doesn't do any of the things above, he says, and does not fulfill uh, his duties, but has eaten on the mountains or defiled his neighbor's wife, if he has oppressed the poor and needy, robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, lifted his eyes to the idols, or committed abomination, or if he exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely, uh, he shall surely die, and his blood shall be upon him. And here's the, the, the third uh, hypothetical situation. If, however, he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise, who has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, has not oppressed anyone, nor withheld a pledge, nor robbed by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and not received usury or increase, but has executed my judgment and walked in my statutes. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed robbed his brother by violence and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Basically, what Ezekiel is saying here, you can't blame your ancestors. You can't blame anybody else for your sin. You know, oh, my father wasn't a good role model or my parents weren't good or, or whatever it might be. 
It might have an influence, but it is not, you cannot blame them if you choose the same path. So Ezekiel here refused the proverb that he quoted there in verse 1 by using this situation involving three men in a family. People that his listeners could identify with. A father, his son, and then the grandson. He started with a righteous father here in verses 5 through 9. A hypothetical Jew who kept God's law and therefore was just wouldn't die because of the sins mentioned in verses 4 and 9. Death is mentioned often in this chapter. And many think it refers to only physical death and not eternal punishment. Even though any Jew who didn't exercise saving faith in the Lord wouldn't be accepted by God. Now, whether people lived under the Old Covenant or the New Covenant, before or after the cross, the way of salvation is the same. Faith in the Lord that's evidenced by a new life of obedience. There's the evidence of being born again. The evidence of being a Christian, a new creature in Christ. It's evidenced by a new life of obedience. In describing this man... This first man, Ezekiel, named eight negative offenses along with eight positive qualities. The negative sins this man avoids are attending idolatrous feasts in the high places and worshiping idols in his own land, committing adultery, and incurring ritual uncleanness. There in verse 6. Taking advantage of people, using violence to rob people. In verse 7. Lending money with interest and demanding a profit. In verse 8. So the eight positive qualities are returning a debtor's pledge, feeding the hungry and clothing the naked, in verse 7, living justly and promoting justice, in verse 8, living by God's attitude, uh, statutes and obeying His uh, uh, ordinances and living with integrity, according to verse 9. So these offenses and qualities are mentioned in the law of Moses. But the man acted the way he did because he loved God, and he had a new heart and a new spirit within him, according to verse 31 here. He put God first in his life. This man treated people with kindness and mercy, and he used his material riches to honor God and to serve others. And, and as evidence of his faith in Jehovah, he obeyed the two great commandments given in the law, to love the Lord and to love his neighbor, in Matthew 22, 30 through, 34 through 40. But then... His righteous father, the first man, the righteous father, had an unrighteous son in verses 10 through 13. And Ezekiel had nothing good to say about him. He listed 10 offenses against God's law, and three of them were capital crimes. Murder, verse 12 and 14. Uh, idolatry, verse 11 and 12. And adultery, in verse 11. This godless son took advantage of the poor. He charged his debtor's interest. He never returned the, debtor, the debtor's pledge. They're collateral for the, for, the, for the loan. And he did all he could to make a profit, even if it meant hurting people and disobeying God's law. So the verdict for him in verse 9, he shall surely die. Then he had a son, which is a third character, which is really the grandson of the first man. The third character in this drama was a righteous grandson in verses 14 through 18. You know, if, it, it seems strange that the godly man in verses 5 through 9 raised an ungodly son who himself had a, who had a godly son. The grandson followed the righteous example of his grandfather, not the evil example of his father. King Hezekiah was a godly father 
whose son Manasseh was evil. And even though late in life, he did repent. But Manasseh's son Ammon was evil. But he fathered the godly King Josiah. So as we know, the ways of the Lord, man, sometimes they're strange. We don't understand it. But thank God, there were, there were, where sin abounded, as Paul said, a grace abounded much more. Twelve godly character traits are mentioned about this third man. The four that are lacking are ritual cleanness, mentioned in verse 6, living justly and promoting justice in verses 12 and 13, and acting with integrity in verse 9. Now, because they're not mentioned, doesn't mean that the man was guilty of these sins. Because the first list doesn't mention every possible Mosaic law. The point is this, that the third man, the grandson, resisted the bad fluence in the home. He obeyed the Lord in spite of his father's bad example. The Lord did not kill the grandson because of his father's sins or even spare him because of his grandfather's righteousness. But God dealt with the man on the basis of his own faith and his own righteousness. Look at verses 19 through 24. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous, righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, and he shall not die. Verse 22. None of the transgressors, I'm sorry, none of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? Verses 19 through 24 says, you can blame yourself if you die in your sin. In this part of Ezekiel's message, he responded to the questions of his listeners given in verse 19, <clears throat> just as he had responded to their, to their question in verse 2. He describes a wicked man who repented, turned from his sins, and lived. In verses 19 through 23. Then he described a righteous man who turned to his sins and died in verse 24. The lesson from these two examples is clear and it answered their questions. People determine their own character and their own destiny by the decisions that they make. So neither the exiles in Babylon nor the citizens in Jerusalem were the prisoners and victims of some predestined thing. They were not the, the victims or prisoners of some predestination that forced them to act the way that they did. And a lot of people say, hey, you know, I, I was just predestined to this, you know, because of my upbringing or whatever it might be. The people's own belief, which was rejecting, and they rejected Jeremiah's message, their own belief and their disobedience, they worshiped heathen idols, defiling God's temple. They, that, that brought the Babylonian army to their gates. And Zedekiah breaking the covenant with Nebuchadnezzar brought the army back to destroy Jerusalem. So everything God had told them to do, they didn't do. 
This is what made them prisoners and victims. Ezekiel was giving the Jewish nation a message of hope. He was saying, look, if you would truly repent and turn to the Lord, I will go to work on your behalf as I promised you. But if you persist in sinning, I will continue to deal with you like rebellious children. God says, I don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. But, he is re- he, but he's not required to invade their minds and their hearts and force them to obey him. That's one of the other sides of the coin of free will. It's a great thing, but you know, you can, God doesn't, you know, he doesn't force you to do his will. He doesn't force you to obey him. In verse 21, Ezekiel says, notice, if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. God is glad to give him life, verse 23 says. On the other hand, Ezekiel asks, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? The answer is no. Now, from this point on, see what the scriptures are telling us. Take note. Ezekiel said, all the, notice, all the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed, because of them he shall die. What are you saying there? You know, I have, may have been a good, I, I may have walked with God. I have, may have done a lot of good things. But if I become unfaithful, and I turn my life away from walking with God, and I turn to sin, I will die in that sin, and I will be eternally lost. Ezekiel explains even further in verse 26. Notice what he says in verse 26. When a righteous man, notice, turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. In other words, such a person that really has been righteous has really fallen from grace. If he doesn't come back to God but dies in his fallen state, he will suffer God's holy wrath. Now here's where we get into the, 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 you know, the, the, the once saved, always saved doctrine, the controversy. Listen to what the Bible says. Not what we've been told. And, and, and again, it, it's a nice doctrine because it says I can live like hell and still go to heaven. That's not in the Bible. The evidence of one that's born again is a life of obedience. Now, some people say you can't fall from grace. You can't turn away from the Lord. You can't drift away. Well, let me read some scriptures to you. Hebrews 21, therefore, Paul, the writer, we believe it was Paul, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. Why the warning? If I can't drift away. Galatians 1, 6, Paul says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him, Jesus Christ, who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not a different gospel. Why the warning of turning away if... They can't turn away. 
Galatians 5, 4, Paul says, You have become estranged from Christ, separated from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, turning back to the law, he says, you have fallen from grace. See, it's important that we see this loss was incurred not because they abandoned God's, uh, not because you know, they abandoned God's, um, I'm sorry. It's important to see that this loss, their loss was incurred because they abandoned God's grace. God didn't take it away from them. They abandoned it. They walked away from it. Listen to this statement from the Beacon's commentary. It is ever so mistaken the idea, but ever so widely accepted in Protestantism, that once one is a Christian that he cannot fall from grace and be lost. This was taught by John Calvin from 1509 to 1564, by the Calvinists in the times of James Arminius, and is still taught by many Calvinists in the time of James Arminius, I'm sorry, and still taught by uh, many Calvinist authorities who have nonetheless accepted Arminianism at other points, for example, that anyone may be saved. Goes on to say, it's difficult to understand how one can reconcile a theology of once in grace, always in grace with the clear biblical teaching of Ezekiel in this passage. You know, it wasn't until 1,000 years later that unconditional election and eternal security was taught when Augustine, steeped in Stoic ways, became a Christian in the middle of life and soon a theologian. Calvin and Calvinism wouldn't notice. It wouldn't appear for some 2,000 years. Ezekiel could hardly have conceived that their teaching would one day be advocated, supported by a broad segment of the people of God. But as if to prohibit or rule out the birth of such a teaching, that is Calvinism, Ezekiel says simply that a man ever so righteous might fall away and die in his sin and that his righteousness, which he has done, will not be remembered. You see, it's not what, how, how much we've done in the past, it's what we do in the future till we get to the, to the finish line, to the grave. He goes on to say, Surely it would take a twisting of texts to teach that believers can never be lost in the face of teachings such as this. See, our Bible is the rule. Our Bible is the standard. The same God who won't save a man against his will won't keep a man saved against his will. This is the key of sustain or to sustaining grace. Goes on to say, as long as a soul wants and wills to love and serve God, he is secure. That's what John 5, uh, 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 15 talks about, abiding in Christ. The word abide means to stay or to remain in a given place or thing. As long as I abide in Christ and he abides in me, there's my security. Jesus Christ is my security. So again, this is the key to sustaining grace. As long as a soul wants to and wills to love and serve God, he is secure. But a man, when a man chooses to return to the slavery of sin and Satan, God Almighty will respect his decision. Look at verses 25 through 32 now. 25 through 32. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed because of them he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? 
When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies in it, is it because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies? Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive because he considers... Uh, because, uh, because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed, he shall surely live, she shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is it not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone, knows, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all of your sins so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves, notice, get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Again, and here, you can't blame your parents for your sin. You can only blame yourself. You can't blame the Lord for your eternal destiny. And one of the things that Calvin is that some are predestined to hell and some are predestined to, to heaven. God doesn't say that. Jesus died for every soul, every living soul. He died for everyone. What kind of, that, is, that, that totally goes against God's nature. He doesn't want, he says, he doesn't want any man to perish. So why would he destine some to heaven and some to hell? Again, it does not fit the context. It doesn't fit the scriptures. It doesn't fit the character of God. You can't blame the Lord for your eternal destiny. And for the third time, Ezekiel quotes the words of the complaining lies. He says, the way of the Lord, you know, they were saying the way of the Lord is not fair. They were saying God wasn't playing fair with his people. But Ezekiel pointed out that it was the people who weren't being fair with God. When they obeyed the Lord, they wanted him to keep the terms of the covenant that he promised them, that you will receive blessing. But when they disobeyed, they didn't want God to keep his terms of the covenant and bring the chastening. They wanted God to act contrary to his own word and his own holy nature. 1 John 1, 5 says God is light, which means he's holy and he's just. 1 John 4, 8 and 16 says that God is love and his love is a holy love. Nowhere does scripture say that we're saved from our sins by God's love because, because salvation is by the grace of God, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, and grace is love that pays a price. In God's great love, he gave a gracious covenant to Israel requiring only that they worship and serve him and him alone with all of their hearts. When sinners repented and they, and they sought the Lord, in his grace, he would forgive them. But when people deliberately rebelled against him, in his holiness, God would punish them. And again, after bearing with them for so long in his long suffering. I mean, what could be more fair than that? If you want the truth, if God did what, think about it. If God did what was fair, we'd all be crispy critters in hell right now. He would send the whole world to hell. In closing, in the conclusion of this message, God was inviting the people to repent, to change their minds, to turn from their sins, cast away their transgressions like filthy garments, and seek a new heart and a new spirit. God promised them a new heart if they'd only seek him by faith. 
This was one of the main themes in the letter of Jeremiah that he sent to the captives in Babylon. But the people didn't take it to heart. God made it clear. He said, I don't, I, I don't delight in the death of the wicked. But if the wicked found enjoyment in their sinful ways and they don't want to repent, there was nothing that he could do. There's nothing the Lord could do but obey his own covenant and punish them. And as we go on, we're going to see Ezekiel develop this theme even more. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. And we thank you so much for your word, Lord. And again, your word is what we base our life on, God. Your word is what we obey. And again, Lord, all those perceived uh, notions and, uh, and, and ideas, God, precepts, just, Lord, they're broken by your word, Lord. Father, your word is what we go by. So help us to stand upon your word, God to take every doctrine, every, every wind of doctrine that blows across this land, Father, whether old or new, let us run it through the scriptures and see if it stands up to the word of God. For your word is true. It is holy and it is righteous. And so, Father, let us again look to you, to your word, and to your spirit, and to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, back to Ephesians Sunday morning. We'll start chapter 6, and uh, we're, we're looking.